0: Welcome to Dun & Dunn. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thanks for joining me today as we continue our investigation into Dominic Dunn's Hollywood. We are here in the Dun & Dun podcast. It's a 100% narratives about our man Nick, but it's a 1,000% about all of these narratives that surround Nick, all the characters, all the connections, all the intricate framework of... This amazing, rarefied world that he gets access to. I think a few of you are fans of this world. I want to give a few quick shout outs before we get deep diving in our episode today. I want to give a shout out to Lori M., our newest Patreon supporter. Thanks so much for finding us over at patreon.com slash done and done for early ad free episodes, bonus episodes too. I want to give another big shout out to Victoria H. from London. Thank you for your very kind, sweet email and the connection to Keith. I don't know if y'all remember back in the Ava Gardner story, where Ava Gardner talks about going to Keith, who is the handsomest of London veterinarians. Victoria H. as a child took their Cocker Spaniel Charlie to Keith and let me know of Dr. Keith's extraordinary handsomeness. Thank you for that. Thank you all for your kind reviews, your sweet emails. You're extraordinarily kind. I love reading them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today, as we get into this episode, I wanted to take a moment and sort of benchmark the time in Hollywood that Dominic does spend. Let's go ahead and get into it, friends. We have dipped a little bit into Laurel Canyon, but I want to take this episode almost to universe build a little bit about the time that Dominic Dunn is in Hollywood. We spent a lot of time over on the East Coast Universe Building. I want to do the same thing over here on the West Coast. What happens in Dominic Dunn's Hollywood fever dream in his first act there? Ah, scratch that second act. Remember Dominic Dunn does land in Hollywood from 1957 to his exile in the mid-1970s. And this is the thing, y'all. He documents all of it in this wonderful memoir called The Way We Lived Then. We get an absolute crystalline insight into his network, photographs, the people. I'm going to go ahead and read Dominic Dunn's own words. This is a piece that he writes for Vanity Fair in July of 1997 called The Best of Times. Leaving through the 15 leather-bound scrapbooks that he kept in the 50s and 60s, Dominic Dunn recalls the Hollywood idol he lived with his wife, Lenny, in what now seems like a different world, and the fabulous 1964 black-and-white ball, attended by everyone from the Jimmy Stewarts and the Ronald Reagans to Natalie Wood and Truman Capote, they threw to celebrate their 10th wedding anniversary. Of late, while writing a new book, Another City Not My Own?, which is subtitled a novel in the form of a memoir, I have been in a somewhat reminiscent frame of mind, thinking back to earlier times. The city of the book's title is Los Angeles, where in a previous career, and what seemed like a different lifetime, I lived for a great many years. My wife and I raised our children there. I was a member of what is referred to as the industry, meaning the film and television business. My source material for the reawakening of memory consists of 15 leather-bound scrapbooks, which I kept with meticulous care for six or seven years until the circumstances of my life began to change and I ceased to record it. Looking back now, I often say to myself, I can't believe I ever lived like that. Nor can I. This memoir is truly one of my touchstones. It is always a fantastic resource, not only for Dunn's recollections and words and narratives, but also pictures. The photographs are out of this world. Dominic collects it all in these books, in this spider web that is fascinating. He collected it. He cherished these memories. Let's universe build on these today, right here and right now, with where our man Nick is in his Hollywood in the 1950s and 1960s. We're going to set the stage a bit here before going back in time to fill out this podcast journey. Let's investigate. My. let's get Dominic Dunn setting the scene. Not that Hollywood hasn't always been his scene. I mean, from the time he's telling the tour bus drivers when he's nine years old in that mid-1930s visit with Aunt Harriet, Hollywood's always been Dominic's scene. That's Dominic's first foray into Hollywood. The second is Dominic's landing in Hollywood. Remember, he goes out, stays at the Beverly Hills Hotel, to work with Martin Manalus, and we'll get that invitation from Humphrey Bogart to his Holmby Hills home with Lauren Bacall. The infamous party, all the stars, everyone jumps in the pool. Dominic Dunn is starry-eyed, and he knows where he wants to be. When The Way We Live Then comes out, there's a journalist, Sean Elder, and he writes a wonderful piece. This is from October of 1999. The piece is called A Dunn Deal, and I just loved it for the astute narrative of being able to describe Dominic Dunn in 1999. This is the subheading of the article. In his new memoir, Dominic Dunn describes how he found fame the old-fashioned way he yearned for it. This is from Sean Elder. As name droppers go, I'm no Dominic Dunn. Most of the names I could drop, I met in the line of duty, writing profiles of movie actors for fashion magazines. Since those people were promoting films in their own careers, and since talking to me was often a contractual obligation for them, it's impossible for me to front. But Dunn, best-selling novelist and special correspondent for Vanity Fair, was by his own admission a, quote, natural-born star fucker, before I'd even heard the term, unquote. His new book, The Way We Live Then, Recollections of a Well-Known Name Dropper, brings the pastime to a new level. The memoir is a clusterfuck of celebrity, crisscrossing as he has the worlds of Hollywood and New York, entertainment and society as effortlessly as a butterfly. Though the book offers plenty of evidence of his access to the lives of the rich and famous and features more recognizable names than Liz Smith's Rolodex, I can offer my own humble testimonial to his ubiquity in several social worlds while attempting to drop a few names myself. Sean Elder continues, and he tells of going to the wedding of Dennis Hopper. This is upon his fifth marriage. This would have been 1985. You can find a few episodes about Dennis Hopper over on Trashy Divorces. And Sean Elder says he's a little out of place at this wedding. The bride, Victoria Duffy, will cancel at the last minute. And all of this is dishy, but it's not the story for today. Sean Elder is writing about the guest we care about at the party, a very particular guest. And wow, if this is not astute and terrific writing to describe Dominic Dunn and the book that he releases. Picking back up from Sean Elder's article. But in the midst of all of it, there was one man who was getting what ceramic artist Ron Nagel would call the full cheese. One guy everyone gravitated toward and paid obeisance to. Where a lot of these famous people seemed to know each other through name and face recognition, this little white-haired guy in the owlish glasses seemed to know them all. He took all corners on with a handshake or a kiss, and scanned the periphery with a practiced eye. He made eye contact with me and did the shudder blink of non-connection. You're nobody. It was done, of course, and his presence there, his importance there, is a testament to his survival skills, his tireless mingling and scene-making, and the fickle hand of fame that, as he has said of Hollywood, forgives every sin but failure. We know that Dominic Dunn's third act as a writer will get him back to Hollywood in the 1990s for this particular time period, but this is after his crash and burnout in the 70s. He had failed in Hollywood and there was no expectation that he would ever come back. When he does come back, Dunn has already written about power and privilege. He is recording it all in these miraculous scrapbooks. But when Dominic does come back in the 1990s, he's going to, because of the events in his life, the murder of his daughter Dominique, many of the other things he's reported on, he's going to add that essential last block of justice to the power and the privilege. Continuing from Sean Elder, Dunn can almost be held responsible for a new level of celebrity journalism which someone once opined is to real journalism what military music is to music. Not the kind that I wrote, a simple profile of a celebrity, not even the kind abundant in magazines today in which a celebrity profiles a celebrity. No, what Dunn hath wrought is the sort of celebrity journalism in which the journalist himself is a celebrity by dint of knowing celebrities. It's a hall-of-mirrors trick and not an easy one to pull off. You have to have fucked a few stars yourself. As Dunn makes abundantly clear in his breezy, occasionally alarming narrative, there is a definite price attached. Holy cats, this is 1999, y'all. What a piece. Let's go back to that last line. What Dunn hath wrought is the sort of celebrity journalism in which the journalist himself is a celebrity by dint of knowing other celebrities. It's a hall of mirrors trick and not an easy one to pull off. As Dunn makes abundantly clear in his breezy, occasionally alarming narrative, there is a definite price attached. Oh, what a price. This is a great time to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into universe building with Dominic's world. See you on the flip. Investigators, I'm here to tell you a great story. And one of my challenges in the Done and Done podcast is the fact that there's nothing linear at all about the tale of Dominic Dunn. There's no straight through timeline. Sure, time works like we expect time to work, but everything is connected. In the piece that we're going to explore today, We're going to be getting into the part of it that may help define Dominic Dunn's world, this Nick universe, so to speak, because it expands. It's enormous. It's huge. Where everything is intricately connected. We're going to go back to that piece that Nick wrote in Vanity Fair, July of 1997, as he is leafing through those scrapbooks piecing together the memoir that will be titled The Way We Lived Then. This is done writing, My wife, whose name was Ellen, but who was called Lenny and I, along with our two sons, moved to Los Angeles from New York in 1957. Nick and Lenny did marry. April 24, 1954, the same day as Patricia Kennedy and Peter Lawford, Both the Dunn's and the Kennedy Lawford's do get the same amount of inches within the New York Times for their wedding announcements. Dominic Dunn was always very proud of that. Honestly, each sentence in this article could be its own episode. Continuing on from Dunn, It was a heady experience to arrive there as newcomers and be taken up in the social life of the film community the way we were. For two years, we rented Harold Lloyd's Beach House in Santa Monica. Down the beach on one side, past Daryl Zanuck's house, lived Peter and Patricia Kennedy Lawford, who had just bought the Louis B. Mayer house, which had its own projection room. Goodness, we have done a bonus episode on Patreon about that Louis B. Mayer house where Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy did buy and live next door to the Duns. This universe is so expansive. This is done continuing again because, whoa, let's start strong, my friend. On the other side to the north of us, Mae West lived in a Nutra-designed house, which was next to the massive colonial-style beach house that William Randolph Hearst had built for Marion Davies, which was then in the process of being converted into a private club. Talk about starting strong, Dominic. Peter Lawford is not remembered well today, but in the years of our friendship, before the deluge that engulfed him, which happened in the lives of so many people in this story, myself included, he was a charming and funny fellow, the center of a group of friends who rode waves, played volleyball, and gambled at poker. He and Pat, whose brother was about to be the President of the United States, were still very much in love. They ran a house where the atmosphere was relaxed and the dress was casual. Judy Garland used to come to dinner, as did Marilyn Monroe. When President Kennedy helicoptered in for Sunday lunch on a couple of occasions, you knew that where you were was the best place to be at that moment in time. There are so many stories about this particular Kennedy Lawford home and all the people there hanging around. Remember, Nick and Lenny at this time are friends not only with Peter and Patricia, but also Spider Savage, Claudine Langer, friends with Robert Kennedy and his wife as well. The Daisy is about to be in full swing. Again, each sentence in this piece could be its own episode. Trying to cover a lot of territory in this one. Back to Dunn. When our daughter was born, we left the beach and moved into Beverly Hills where we bought a house on Walden Drive, which we both loved from the minute we stepped in the front door. For whatever reasons, it became one of the houses that people liked to come to, and come they did. It was always full of people. English lords on their grand tour of America stayed with us. We seemed to be forever giving dinners and lunches for someone or other who was passing through town. We lived extravagantly, Far too well for a couple our age. We did spend too much money. We took it for granted, or at least I did. Lenny was inclined to hold back. I was of the more, more, more school. And for real, y'all, Dominic Dunn is a self admitted B rate producer. But holy cats, he is the A list of society, both he and Lenny. This is a super glamorous time in the 1950s and 1960s and the Dunn home on Walden Drive is very much the center of the scene, I think as these names, at least mentioned in this article, will bear out. During part of that time, I was under contract to 20th Century Fox as a producer in its new television department and Daryl Zanuck was the head of the studio. Even though this was the swan song period of the studio system, the 20th lot was still run like old times. My bungalow was next to the producer Jerry Wald's. Marilyn Monroe, before her deluge, was the queen of the lot, beloved by all except the front office. One night at a party at Romanov's, which was the swellest restaurant in town, Marilyn arrived late having just been sewn into the tightest green sequined dress imaginable by the wardrobe department at Fox, and taught some of Hollywood's society ladies, such as Mrs. Billy Wilder and Mrs. Fred de Cordova, how to walk her famous walk, roaring with laughter as she led them in a line. How carefree it all seemed. Mike Romanoff, going to talk about him. Marilyn Monroe absolutely deserves her own episode. But who are the other two women here that Dominic is talking about? Mrs. Billy Wilder is the actress Audrey Young. Billy Wilder, a five-decade career responsible for some of Hollywood's most legendary movies, Sunset Boulevard, Double Indemnity, Some Like It Hot. He's a big deal. Audrey Young, once married to Billy Wilder, will be one half of a social construct in Hollywood. The other half of that social construct in Hollywood is Mrs. Fred de Cordova. This would be Jane Thomas. When she marries Fred, Jane and Audrey run the town. Fred de Cordova is, whoa, talented too. Films and television but it is really Fred and Billy's wives, Audrey and Janet, that make their lives so successful socially in Hollywood, and Janet and Audrey run that town. Continuing on here, the founder of MCA Jules Stein and his wife Doris, the William Goetzes, the Gary Coopers, and Merle Oberon were the big hosts in filmland society. The Steins, who mixed European titles and Hollywood stars, lived in a spectacular house at the top of Angelo Drive, where the Rupert Murdochs now live, and always had their butler, Charles, stand next to the guest book in the front hall to make sure everyone signed. At Merle Oberon's house on Ladera Drive, you were likely to have lunch in the garden with Barbara Hutton, the much-married Woolworth heiress, or dinner in the candlelit dining room with prince philip the consort of queen elizabeth I want to go ahead and hold up just a little bit here on merle oberon merle oberon legendary actress very good friend of dominic dunns merle will marry the legendary film magnate alexander corda merle does become lady corda for a little while dominic's first editor michael corda is the nephew of Alexander. These intricate connections are what fascinate me. I want to talk just a little bit, kind of getting to Dominic's end and this story where Dominic goes to visit Merle Oberon, his great friend in Acapulco. And Dominic, for whatever reason, he will say, I don't know why I did it. It was an entirely dumb thing to do. Comes back on that flight from Acapulco with some marijuana. It's got some grass on him. He's asked, "Are you carrying any illegal drugs?" And sure enough, Dominic Dunn's suitcase is searched and marijuana's found, gets arrested. It's terrible. Dunn's like, "Oh, I'm certain to be over now." But then Dunn gets a call from a gangster. His name is Belden Cattleman. And Belden Cattleman calls Dominic Dunn and asks, "When is your hearing? Who is your judge?" And Dominic is waiting every day for the news of his arrest to hit the newspapers. It never does. Dominic gets to court and the court case is called without mentioning any names. The judge says, would all involve parties of case so-and-so, please come up to the bench. Dominic's lawyer comes back and asks Dominic, who the hell do you know? This whole thing is removed from records. There's no existence of it. Dominic, has got some friends in high places, apparently. So months pass. Dominic will attend a wedding at Tony Curtis's house and will see Belden Cattleman. And Dunn goes up to Belden Cattleman and says, you know, that was incredible. Why? I'm assuming you helped me. Why did you help me? And Belden Cattleman says to Dominic, when I first came to this town, no one talked to me but you always did. You were always nice to me at every party, even when no one else paid attention to me. It's a really good rule, be nice to people. So many stories woven into this. Okay, we're going to get back to done here and get into a few fun spider webs. Mrs. Getz, Edie by name, was always referred to as Hollywood royalty, which she was. She was the daughter of Louis B. Mayer, the co-founder of MGM, the wife of William Goetz, who had been one of the founders of 20th Century Fox, and the one-time sister-in-law of the great film producer David Selznick, who divorced her sister Irene to marry Jennifer Jones. The Goetzes, who had the best art collection in town, entertained moguls and titans. They had a printed menu at each place at dinner and always showed the latest movie after dinner when the Picassos were raised to reveal the projection room windows and a cinemascope screen was lowered from the ceiling. Rocky Cooper, the elegant wife of Gary, mixed Southampton society people, such as Henry and Ann Ford, with movie stars such as Audrey Hepburn and Rock Hudson. It was a very glamorous time. How can he name drop more in one paragraph, y'all? I'm hoping a lot of these names sound familiar to you. We have so much to discuss. Continuing from done, even talking about the starriness of finding religion in Hollywood. Even Sunday Church was not like it is in other places. The 945 Mass at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills which was nicknamed Our Lady of the Cadillacs, because of the sheer swank of its parishioners was the one to attend. Rosalind Russell and her producer husband, Freddie Brisson, would arrive in their black Rolls Royce. The Coopers, with their beautiful daughter Maria, who was the godmother to our daughter, arrived in their gray Bentley. The hotel magnate, Conrad Hilton, who was married to Zsa, Zsa Gabor, always dropped a $100 bill in the collection basket. The parishioners would stare when Loretta Young and Jane Wyman, who were always dressed to the nines, went to communion. Jane Mansfield, with her husband, Mickey Hartigay, came to that mass with their children. Afterward, everyone stood outside on Bedford Drive and chatted. I remember Clark Gable coming on occasion with his fifth wife, Kay Aldrich Spreckles, who was a regular, and they would drive off in a dark brown Mercedes convertible with the top down. Everyone wore dark glasses, even in church. Few other mentions in here about that paragraph. Kay Aldrich Spreckles. This is her fourth marriage, although she is Clark Gable's fifth wife. Before this marriage to Clark Gable, Kay was married to Adolph B. Spreckels II. This is the sugar heir. His father, Adolph Spreckels I, will build the famous Spreckels mansion in the Pacific Heights area of San Francisco that Danielle Steele, famous novelist, will make her home in for many, many decades. Jane Mansfield, legendary talent in our current culture, we know Jane is the mother of Mariska Hardigay, Olivia Benson, within the SVU franchise. Jane Wyman was another name here. Jane Wyman was married to Ronald Reagan before Ronald Reagan married Nancy Davis. Continuing back from Dunn, reporters and photographers were rarely seen in such exalted circles, except at events organized for charity, although hostesses would have Hedda Hopper or Luella Parsons and later Joyce Haber, the reigning gossipists, to dinner once or twice a year in order to stay on their good side. At that time, long before I began to write, I was a rather good photographer, so people would ask me to bring my camera to their parties, and I did. Natalie Wood and Mia Farrow once gave a party in the polo lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel and told Lenny to tell me to take photos. I photographed Warren Beatty at the height of his bachelor powers, playing the piano at one of the then Mrs. Vincent Minnelli's parties. That would be Judy Garland, Warren Beatty, so many spiderwebs. And here is Nick behind the camera. He can get behind the lens and become an observer. And aren't we grateful for all those photos he so lovingly took, saved, and scrapbooked. This next sentence, again, one of my favorites, the... This is a whole episode, but I'm going to give you the heads up on it now. I have pictures of Jane Fonda dancing to the music of the birds at a tent party she gave on the beach at Malibu shortly before she married Roger Vadim. This party that Dominic is talking about that he photographed is the legendary Independence Day party of 1965 that Jane Fonda throws where... Old Hollywood and New Hollywood come together? The Birds do play. The Birds, famous band, living in Laurel Canyon, consisting at this point of David Crosby, Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, Chris Hillman, and Michael Clark, have been asked by Jane Fonda to play for her Party of All Parties. How did the Birds get this gig? Because Jane Fonda's brother, Peter, has been to Ciro's. Just last week... The birds at this point are working a residency at Ciro's, the very famous nightclub, newly revamped into kind of a hippie hot spot. Ciro's is located at the base of Laurel Canyon, and Jane Fonda in her Malibu beach house, old Hollywood, new Hollywood. Her home is next to Roddy McDowell's. Roddy McDowell is best friends with Natalie Wood. Roddy McDowell's beach party scenes are legendary. The still photos and the silent films of these events are incredible. Just legends, hanging out, having hamburgers and hot dogs on a Sunday afternoon at the beach. This Independence Day party is not to be believed. We'll definitely get into that story one day. I want to go ahead and continue on with Dominic here. I began to keep scrapbooks of my photographs, along with invitations, letters, telegrams, and newspaper accounts about Lenny and me and the people we knew. I even saved a typed copy of the eulogy that CBS founder William Paley read at David Selznick's funeral. Now when I look through those scrapbooks, I sense a certain desperation in me at that time, a need to document the life we led with such great exactitude, as if I knew it wasn't going to last. It won't last, but it sure was a ride. This next section is going to take us out of this episode. Dunn is writing about he and Lenny's black and white ball. We've heard about Truman Capote's 1966 black and white ball based on the inspiration of the ball two years before that Nick and Lenny threw. Continuing Dunn's writing here. The high point for us was our black and white ball, which we gave to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. Get ready for name drop, you When Cecil Beaton was doing the sets and costumes for My Fair Lady, he sometimes came to dinner. And the black and white motif for our party was taken from the ascot scene he designed for the picture. The party was months in the planning, like a feature production. No expense was spared. The invitations, which requested that ladies wear black or white, were engraved by Smithsons of New Bond Street, in London. Tent parties, in which the pool gets covered to create a dance floor, are regular Saturday night events in Beverly Hills. We went far, far beyond that. We totally redid our house. Our furniture was put in storage. Our children were placed in a hotel with a nanny. Our house was transformed, both inside and out, into a total fantasy by Jack McCullough, a muralist and stage designer who became a family friend. He painted backdrops and placed them outside the windows, which gave a feeling of being backstage in a theater. Our living room became a winter garden with trellised walls, lit theatrically so that people passed in and out of spotlights as they greeted one another. The effect was quite amazing. However foolish and extravaganza it may have been, Lenny's mother was furious, mine was bewildered. Anyone who was there will verify that it certainly was beautiful. For the women, it was a night of new ball gowns and elaborate coiffures, and everyone rose to the occasion. There were even a couple of tiaras. Lenny, who was beautiful, was more beautiful that night. About 250 people came. Some flew in from other places to be there. The couturier, Jimmy Galanos, came and watched his dresses whirling by on the dance floor. Vogue sent the photographer, Bob Willoughby, to cover the party. For some reason, he did not take any pictures of the pre-political Ronald and Nancy Reagan, who were among the guests but he did of Alfred and Betsy Bloomingdale. There were hydrangeas everywhere, two bands and a late supper. The music stopped at four. We had sent flowers to all the neighbors so they wouldn't complain to the police about the noise. We mixed ages. We mixed groups. People saw people they hadn't seen for years. Annabella, who was Tyrone Power's first wife, ran to greet David Niven, who turned to greet Angie Dickinson, who turned to greet Tony Curtis. The Lawfords who had separated came together. Natalie Wood was the prettiest woman at the party. We stipulated no house guests in order to keep the number of people within fire law limits, but Truman Capote, who was staying with David Selznick and Jennifer Jones, insisted that he bring his And for Truman, you made an exception. Already famous, he was about to peak. In Cold Blood, which the press had been anticipating for several years, would soon be serialized in The New Yorker, following the execution by hanging of Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, who had murdered the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. The guests whom Truman insisted on bringing were Alvin Dewey and his wife, Dewey was the Kansas Bureau of Investigation agent who had solved the murder case that had transfixed Truman for so long. In a tent full of famous people, Dewey became the most besieged. Everyone wanted to talk to him. Truman, who was a great dancer, was never off the floor. He twirled Natalie Wood, dipped Tuesday Weld, cha-cha'd Hope Lang, and even got the reluctant Jennifer Jones to the dance floor. Two years later, Truman gave his famous black and white ball at the Plaza in New York. He didn't invite us. Yet the Duns didn't get invited, because from what I can gather from my research, Truman had a choice to make, and it was either Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow recently coupled up, or Dominic and Lenny. Remember, Truman Capote's ball is in 1966. Nick and Lenny are hitting sort of a rough marital patch. But also in the fall of 1966, this is where Frank Sinatra has paid the maitre d' at the Daisy to punch Nick in the face. Yikes. There was a bit of a falling out between the couples. Only one couple was chosen to go to Truman's ball, and it was not the couple that gave Truman that inspiration. Back to Dunn's writing as we conclude. Life, of course, never stays carefree. Woes, tribulations, terrible things happen to all of us, and we were no exception. Lenny and I divorced about six years after the ball, but the circumstances of our subsequent lives were such that we never became unmarried. Neither of us ever again lived the way that we had lived then. Things that were urgently important at the time became not important at all as life went on. Although Lenny never shared my enthusiasm for talking about old times, years later we would sometimes discuss the way we had lived then, always in utter amazement. In the final years of her terrible illness, she didn't speak much. Conversation was usually one-sided. One day last year, sitting by the side of her bed, in a house that she had built in Arizona on land that had once been part of her father's cattle ranch. I said to her, Lenny, I was looking at the scrapbook of our black and white ball the other day in the country. She didn't reply. I persisted. Can you ever believe we gave that black and white ball? We must have been out of our minds. For a while she didn't answer. She appeared to be thinking about it. But I didn't actually expect a response. And then I saw the beginning of a smile at the corners of her lips. I went on. Do you remember? We emptied the house and had all the furniture put in storage. She started to laugh as she began to remember. And then she said, Don't forget, we put the kids and the nanny in a hotel. We both roared. It was the biggest laugh we'd had together since our divorce but it sure was pretty, I said. We have told some of those stories within Dun & Dunn. I name-dropped a lot of stuff there that's going to be coming up in future episodes. And Dominic Dunn's world sure was quite pretty, wonderful, and glamorous on the surface, at least in these times. Dunn will crash and burn out in the 70s to come back to Hollywood in the 1990s in his third act, when Hollywood will forgive him for his failure. This book, The Way We Live Then, is the closest that Dominic Dunn ever came to writing his memoirs. Although they say if you really want to know a writer, read his fiction. But this memoir has all the photographic proof, my friends. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Dunn & Done*. We're going to be back sooner than you know with another installment in our Dominic Dunn and Hollywood series. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Dunn & Dunn Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at dunnanddun at gmail.com.